listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. Last week, when we left Jesus, he was um, kind of battling with the Pharisees. Um, this is in, in Luke chapter uh, 6, is where we will be this morning. And he, was, he was, had another encounter with these Pharisees about the subject of God's law, and specifically the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus made a declaration that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, and that he alone can determine how the law will be interpreted and applied. So he's, he's battling with these Pharisees who, again, we know that they are real sticklers for the law, and they've even made up some extra laws that they put on people. And, and the main heart of a Pharisee, and this is kind of what we drew out last week, is this idea that they're always looking to the left and to the right to justify themselves. To say, okay, I'm doing all these things, so I, I'm more righteous than that person, so therefore I'm okay. And what, we're, what the Bible says and what the gospel says is we should be looking up at God because He is... Um, the arbiter of what is righteous. And then we should be looking inside of our own hearts and seeing where he is working and how that is. And it all falls down to this idea of rest. What we do is we rest in his righteousness because we have put our faith in him. So therefore we rest in his righteousness. Again, Jesus comes along and simply says, stop, stop the striving, stop the trying, just rest in me. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. You have my righteousness, and that is a perfect righteousness. So just rest. So after a couple weeks of, of battling and doing ministry and battling with these Pharisees, this opposition from, from these Pharisees, this opposition that keeps coming at him every time. He, he's doing good things, like he's, he's healing people, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's, and he's doing these good things, but he keeps getting this opposition um, Jesus makes his next move, and I, I sometimes wonder when we face opposition or when opposition comes at us, what is our first move? What is the first thing we do? And as we pick up our story and what we're going to be talking about today in verse 12, we see what Jesus did when he faced this opposition. It says this in verse 12, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. You see, Jesus is facing all this opposition and, and his go-to thing, and he does this quite often. He does this all through the thing, either whenever he needs to make a decision or whenever he's about to do something hard or whenever opposition is coming at him, he will go and pray and spend time with the Father. So the question is, is this the first place we go to when we face opposition? The opposition does not have to be human. It can be the fallen world that we live in. It could be the devil or simply from the desires of our own hearts. So when we face opposition, what is our first go-to? Is it to prayer? Is it to the cross? Is it to spend time in the Word and with Lord as we deal with the opposition? I mean, do you, could you come in here today feeling like you're in a war? Well, it's because you are. You're not crazy. You are in a world. You, if you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, and you live in a, in a fallen world, and you're just a sojourner. And everything is pushing against you. So, yeah, you have a war inside of you where the Holy Spirit is trying to sanctify you one step at a time. And then there's a world outside of you to a world that is, has, as we look at it from the biblical point of view, has kind of gone mad. But that's no different than back in Jesus' day as it is today. 
because it's fallen, because of original sin. So you are in a war. But where do we go whenever we feel the opposition? Do we go to prayer? Do we go to Him? Spending time communing with God in prayer is where we find the rest Jesus spoke of last week. It's spending time in His Word and spending time with Him. Spending time communion with God is where we are reminded who God is, who we are, and all the promises that He has given us as believers, as those that are in Christ. Much of our prayer time should be done with an open Bible in front of us and allowing God to speak to us. But Jesus had a second purpose to pray in this particular context, and he prayed all night. And we find that reason in verse 13. We read in verse 13, And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. We know that Jesus had many disciples. At one time, he sent out 70 to proclaim the good news. But what we see here is the setting apart of the 12 to be apostles. Now, this is not the initial calling of the 12. We see that in many different places. We've already looked at a couple different ones. We looked at Simon, right? We've looked at Levi. They're calling to follow him. But this is separate. This is different. This is a calling into apostle. These 12 would occupy an intimate place with him. The task of an apostle was a very special one. The word taken from the Greek apostolos literally means one who is sent. And it literally means, if you want to get a little bit more technical, is one who is sent with a message. So these apostles were sent out with a message. Jesus was the first apostle, right? We read that in in Luke 4 where he came to proclaim the good news to the poor, to deliver the captives and, and declare the day of the Lord. He was the first apostle, if you're thinking of it in that way. And then because he was the first, he's handing down that authority, that chain of authority. The Father sent him, gave him the authority to proclaim the word, and now... Jesus is setting apart 12 to do the same and giving them the authority to do so. Let me just say this. No minister in the church today has the authority of an apostle, nor do any of the great theologians. There's a difference. It's a kind of sometimes they differentiate it by saying, yeah, there's this idea of the gifting of an apostle, one that, that may see like the big picture of things, but there are no more capital A apostles anymore. They're There's no more of those. There's not the same authority. It is given. In fact, if you think about how we are called in our mission and the things that we're called to do, we are done so through the authority of Jesus. It's our, it's his authority that we do everything under. He hasn't given us a special authority. In Matthew 28, when Jesus commissions his church, he says, all authority in heaven has been given to me. Go make disciples. We do so in Jesus name under his authority. He says, baptize them in what? In his name. We don't baptize them in the Mountain City Church name or whoever's doing the baptism. We do it in his name because that's where the authority is. We do not have that kind of authority. Again, there are no capital A apostles today. This is why we pray in 
Jesus' name. We ask the Lord to do these things, and at the end of it, we ask him in, in the authority of Jesus. That way, if you're ever faced, if you're ever in that, in that case, and you know someone's come to you, I remember one of our members, he was working at a church, and someone came in, and he was just like rattling with, wait a minute, is this someone that is really, because they were, they were so anxious about seeing a priest, and, and it was like they felt like there was something possessing them. And maybe someday you might be in that position as well, but we don't do nothing out of our own authority. It's only in Jesus' name that we might do as Jesus did and cast out a demon. I'm not saying that that's a regular practice or we should be going to seek that, but I'm just trying to make the point that the only way that that could be possible is in the name of Jesus, in his authority. We have not been given that authority. There's no more capital A apostles because Jesus is the authority. And he gave the authority to those 12 messed up men. <laughs> Let's be honest. They're kind of, you know, kind of like us, where we have our faults and our flaws and we stumble around sometimes. But he gave them authority. And he, and he knows that the Spirit is working. And you can trust the Spirit at all times. Jesus prayed privately, going up into the mountains to have time alone with God. He prayed fervently, spending the whole night in prayer, and he prayed dependently, asking his Father to help him to make this decision. Later, Jesus would tell the apostles that they were given to him by the Father. Yes, even Judas was given to him by his Father, who betrayed him. But this does not mean that God made a mistake in, in any way. On the contrary, the betrayal of Judas Iscariot was part of God's plan for the death of his son. And we know that because the Word of God tells us that. In John seventeen twelve, it says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. He's talking about those that he has called. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. So we have the 12 that he called, and we have the list of their names here in verses 14 through 16. And I'm just going to read this passage and not say much because we're going to revisit some of those other, specifically some of them as we meet them later on in the book of Luke. So verse 14 is Simon who named Peter, which by the way, just one neat note about how it is always listed within the word of God, that Simon is always listed first and Judas Iscariot is always listed last. In all the different Gospels. So Simon, whom he named Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So Jesus prayed all night. He prayed because the opposition was after him. He prayed because he was seeking the Father's will on who he is calling to be these apostles. So we have the 12 men. One, a traitor. 11, who committed themselves to their lives' end. Each one of them. Most of them, most of them ended in a, in a horrific death. John was kind of left out on an island by himself. But these men who sealed the testimony of their faith in their own blood. I mean, stop and think about that. What these men gave testimony about the resurrected Christ. And how did they confirm that? They confirmed that by giving their own lives in lieu of that. In other words, they're saying that this happened and, and I will go to, the, to their cross, so to speak, because it is true. He is resurrected. He is real. 
He is the Son of God. These were the men whom God gave to the Son after he wrestled in prayer all night. Now that the twelve are chosen, now it's time to teach them. So he's chose the twelve. He has all these people around him, which we're, we're about to read here in verses 17 through 19. But when we get to verse 20, what he's going to do, he's going to teach the disciples. And that actually goes from verse 20 all the way into to the end of chapter 6. And we're just going to take the first part of that as he sets up what he's teaching. So verse 17 says this, And he came down with them after praying and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. By now, all this is familiar, right? Everywhere Jesus spoke, everywhere Jesus was, people were coming from all around to either be healed or to hear what this man has, has to say. So this scene is very familiar, right? We've seen this multiple times so far, and we'll see it many more times as we walk through the book of Luke. Again, Jesus just kept gaining in popularity, so a great crowd gathered to hear him preach. Many identified themselves as his disciples, But others came from all parts of the country. They did not know what to think of Jesus yet. But they wanted to hear what he had to say. Like, who is this man? Like, he can actually heal people. And then he's saying that he can forgive sins. Like, who is this man? Again, they also wanted to come and be healed, those that were suffering. So Jesus, being compassionate as he is, He cured their diseases and cast out their demons, healing everyone who could get close enough to touch him. But performing these miracles, he was demonstrating his power over evil and proving that he was, yes, he was the Christ, the Messiah, the one to come. So for the twelve, the internship has begun. They're with Jesus. They're with him as he does this ministry as he's proclaiming the good news, as he's healing these people. Jesus has brought them alongside him. Again, for the twelve, the internship has begun. They're now in the middle of serving alongside Jesus. For us, there is a principle we see here within these verses, I think. And that is sometimes we we need to, to look at our evangelism and kind of correct something. We, we know that this statement is out there, right? The statement that, that floats out there in, in, the, in the church world, like, um, show them the gospel, use words if necessary. Right? We, we understand that, that that's out there. But this is incorrect because of what Romans ten seventeen says. It says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So only through the proclamation of the good news can someone be saved. However, sometimes, and this is the point I think, we can take from this as we're reading these verses here, 17 through 19, sometimes we might need to remove a barrier so the person can actually hear you and what you're saying. You know, there's a, an adage or a saying saying that people don't care what you know until they know that you care about them. And, and so maybe in these verses we're seeing that maybe sometimes we have to spend some time removing a barrier so they can actually hear the gospel, hear the good news. 
Because maybe they're extremely starving and they just need some food and that's all they can concentrate on. They'll never hear your word. I would say that everyone out there that's outside of Christ is starving, at least spiritually, and they are seeking for something. And thankfully we have the good news that they're seeking for. They just don't know it yet. And sometimes we got to take away the barriers so that they will actually hear us. Yes, God ultimately, through the effectual call, gives them ears to hear what the gospel is saying. So then, for gives them faith to believe and trust in Him. But if someone is hungry or suffering, it is right and good to remove the barrier before proclaiming the gospel so that you will be heard. I think that's a good thing. I think that we're seeing this here with Jesus. Jesus, on the first day of internship, for His newly appointed apostles, He begins to teach them, which we find here in verses 20 and clear to the end of the chapter. We are going to look at 20 through 26 this morning, and I read those verses, and I will think through, we will think through how we should apply these verses to us. As he's teaching the apostles, right, and, and, and it's coming over, it's, it's like we're overhearing it as, as disciples of Jesus. How should that apply to us in our lives today? How should we be thinking through what, what Jesus said here? So let me read verses 20 through 26. Um, this is this is again Jesus speaking. This is his sermon, and, and he's going to say some tough things, and and he's not going to hold back any punches. Um, so let me read verses twenty, starting in verse twenty. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, "Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you." And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. What we know from verses 17 through 19, that what Jesus says here is flowing from a heart of compassion and from one who has authority. The part of Jesus' sermon we have here contains blessings and woes. Woe is not a term that we use today, but it simply means how terrible for you. How terrible for you. How terrible for you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And Jesus is contrasting the life that is blessed and the life that is sad, the life that is unfortunate, it doesn't end well. So that's kind of the woe thinking behind that. What Jesus says about the good life is very counterintuitive. As Jesus says, you are blessed if you are poor, if you are hungry, if you weep, and if people hate you. That's... That's like the upside-down kingdom as often is talked about. And very much so, Jesus' kingdom is upside-down because we think of those things as like, how is that a blessed life? How is that the best life? So we need to do a little work. The blessing Jesus bestows on the poor, hungry, mourning, and persecuted are not for people in general. I don't think he's talking about specific people and specifically his disciples, those he just called to be apostles. But again, but rather for those, now get this, who belong to Jesus and live in these conditions. Jesus is not saying that poverty in its, 
in and of itself is a state of blessedness or happiness. The whole context here is about the cost of following Jesus. He's saying, okay, I'm going to point you as apostles, but there is a cost to follow me. There is a cost to that. And that's the context that he's speaking these things in. Notice that Luke says he lifts up his eyes on his disciples. This is to to his disciples. That's who he's speaking to. Those who are persecuted on the account of the Son of Man, as he says in these verses. There are people who trust in Jesus for the first time and are poor. But there are those who become poor because they trust in Jesus. You understand the difference there? Yeah, you, you, you might not have all that material wealth and be poor as... Luke is saying here, when you come to Christ, but sometimes when you come to Christ, because you are following him, because you are in him, because you are truly following him, you become poor. And that's kind of the idea that he's getting at here. This is speaking of material poor. This is one reason why I think, again, there's an argument and there's a lot of ink spilt. You know, is this the same as the Sermon on the Mount or is this... You know, the truth speak spoke at a different time, or is this just the very same encounter that Matthew and Luke are talking about here? Um, and I think because uh, Luke does not spiritualize the poor, he is talking about the physical poor because he's contrasting it with the rich, that I think these are the same truths that Jesus spoke on the, on the Sermon on, on the Mount, but this is just him speaking it at a different time. Um, they really jump through a lot of hoops when they try to figure out, you know, where, where to be. the Sermon on the Mount starts. He went to the mountain, and then he said all these things, and here he's coming down to the plain. Now, there's endless amount of arguments that we can talk about that, and really, this is one of those things that we can agree to disagree, but let, let's just see what Jesus is actually saying here, because it doesn't matter when he said it, it's the fact that he has said what he has said. So, again, I, I think this is the same truth. You know, a lot of pastors do that. You have good truths. A lot of you that have, have done Bible studies or different things, when you have good truths, you repeat it because you want others to hear it. And I think this is kind of what's happening here as he's beginning the internship of his apostles to teach his disciples. Um, again, it's this idea that those who become poor because they trust in Jesus, those are the ones that are blessed. Those are the ones that are blessed. This word bless is just an absolute mess to try to translate and understand. It's it's kind of a mess from Hebrews, like Psalm 1, and it's kind of a mess from Greek. A lot of people will say happy, and that's just, that's that's not it. That's not the blessed hype, because happy is fleeting. Yeah, it's an okay translation, but um, it is fleeting. Happiness is fleeting. It goes and and comes as as it wills. it's very superficial. At times it is translated being fulfilled, being satisfied, or flourishing. I, I like the word flourishing. Like This life is a flourishing life. It's, it's a life of joy, which I, I think is deeper than happiness. But it's, it's a life of flourishing, being satisfied, being fulfilled. Again, there's like you can find all those different translations, and not only in different translations of the Bible, but as other people start unpacking it. So this blessed life, it's a life of being satisfied, of flourishing. The life Jesus gives us here is not an easy life, after all. It might lead us to persecution, but it is a blessed life. It is the best life. It is an eternally rewarded life. 
So as we think about this, it is helpful to apply this three ways. First of all, notice the contrast that Jesus gives us in these blessings and woes. So there's a contrast he's flushing out here. Then notice the, the comfort he provides to those who are in these difficult circumstances. And not only does he give us a contrast, but now he offers comfort for those that might find themselves in these positions. And thirdly, the challenge that he offers to those with these woes here at the end of this passage that we're looking at. First, the contrast. When you look at the whole sermon together, the rest of verse of chapter 6, Jesus gives us a contrast of worldviews or even a clashing of worldviews. So now we're thinking about this is the introduction to his whole sermon in chapter 6. And he's kind of set up this clash of worldviews. He says essentially there are two ways you can view the world. You can view it through a materialistic worldview or a kingdom worldview. You see the contrast of the poor and rich, hungry and full, weeping and laughing, persecution and honor. And he says there are two, way, two different ways to see the world. Two different ways to assign value to things. And what Jesus says does not jive with the materialistic worldview. What he's saying here does not jive with that kind of worldview. Now, a materialist worldview kind of looks like this. He thinks that matter is essentially all that exists. So there is no God. There's no afterlife. No need for forgiveness. No resurrection. All we live for is the here and now. All we live for is the here and now. That's the materialist idea. And we see this, how Jesus emphasizes in, in two of his places. He says, woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who laugh now. So it's those that are living for the here and now. That's the contrast. Those that are living for this momentary existence. No thought of living for eternal things, only living for temporal things. That is a materialist. I mean, Madonna had a, a song about that, right, some years ago. I, I'm a material girl living in a material world. Like, a lot of people live that way. A lot of people live that this is it. This is all we have. What we have in this world right now, this is it. There's no afterlife. There's nothing else beyond that. This is it. The materialists believe that nothing happens when you die. Absolutely nothing happens. What we should do now is live for the most toys, live for success, live for fame. Although many people would not claim this philosophy, they live like it practically. And many people within the church live that way practically. You might believe in God in theory, in the resurrection in theory, in the forgiveness of sins in theory. But functionally, your day-to-day -day life, your day-to-day -day existence is focused on the here and now. You're focused on the here and now. Jesus provides a corrective in saying that his main reality is the kingdom of God. The main reality is the kingdom of God. This hidden, unseen reality that God created everything. He holds everything together and he makes all things work. And Jesus is the king of that kingdom. So we align ourselves with the king and his values and with his truth. Seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. In contrast, Jesus is giving us two ways to see the world. And one of the things that happens when you become a Christian is you see the world differently. You assign value to things differently. This is the first part of, of his entire sermon. So he's making this contrast. 
between those that, that believe that this world is all there is and those that believe in the kingdom of God and all eternity and all the promises that God has given us for that eternity. He's making this contrast. Again, this is the first part of the sermon. Second, we have Jesus giving comfort. In verses 20 through 23 to the disciples, we see him giving comfort. For there is comfort to the poor disciples. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Again, it's worth repeating, as, as I mentioned earlier, some people were poor when they come to Jesus for the first time. And some people become poor because they are following Jesus. Jesus wants to bring a, a word of comfort for those in the second condition. Many followers of Jesus throughout history of the church have been poor. James tells us in, in 2.5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? This doesn't mean that every believer should be poor or that if you are rich, you need to become poor. He's not saying that at all. But he's saying that in many times, in many ways, and maybe it's just not, you know, we think the poor, we automatically go to money and material things, which I know that's the contrast that he's setting up. But there's many ways that, that, that we lose out on so-called things of this world as we follow Jesus. We got to let those things fall away as we follow him. But he's given us comfort. He says, you let those things fall away, but the kingdom is yours. You're inheriting the kingdom. And the kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It doesn't end. It gives us a new frame of mind is what he's trying to teach his disciples here. We know that there are rich Christians in the Bible. Lydia seemed to be really well off. Zacchaeus is transformed and we see him being radically generous with his much of his income and his money as he goes back and pays people that he might have swindled and given them extra. So don't hear that, that Jesus is saying that, oh, I, I, I got to be poor. And he's not saying that. It's, it's more of whether or not you're living for the here and now or for the kingdom. And as that is the motive of, of your riches, is this what you're depending on? Do you need to go and build more barns to hold the things? So he's looking at, at this attitude, this, this different looking of giving value to things in this world. And then naturally, coming off of that, if you're poor, sometimes you're hungry. It's a subset of the poor, if you will. Jesus says, you shall be satisfied. Notice this is in the future tense. He says, if you're hungry, you will be satisfied. It's in the future tense. You can find satisfaction in me now. That is true. But future, future satisfaction is promised to every follower of Jesus. Every one of us. No matter what is missing in your life. No matter what you're yearning for. It is there in the future. In the future kingdom that Jesus will bring. Yes, Jesus does fulfill us now and, and hold us to that day. But some of us do yearn. I know I do one day that a lot of the things that I even struggle with, a lot of the things that it's like, okay, Joe, you're going around the mountain again about the same thing. That one day those things, right? As I hunger for him, that one day it'll be fulfilled. This idea that we will never be in want if we love and follow Jesus. We will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb if we love and follow 
Jesus. Comfort for the hungry, and there's comfort for those who weep. He says, you shall laugh. Those who weep will laugh. When you're weeping, you think laughing is out of reach sometimes, don't you? I know I do. It's like when, when something has happened in life or suffering or I'm sad because of, of someone has been injured or someone, a lot of times I'm sad because um, they're just, they won't accept that they're walking and living in sin and it's hurting them. And you kind of weep. He says one day all that weeping that we do for for lost loved ones, for lost relationships, one day that weeping will be laughing. But again, Christians weep differently because we value things differently. We weep over our unbelief and the unbelief of others. We weep over the suffering we see in others' lives because our hearts have been softened to weep over what makes God weep. I'm sure many of you have shed tears lately in one of those ways. Either you've lost a loved one or you've lost a relationship. And many of you have wept and shed tears. And Jesus brings a word of comfort. A new world is coming where you shall laugh. There's coming a day in which this world will be rid of crime, rid of mourning, And there will be just be dancing. You will never cry another tear. Isn't that a remarkable thought? Maybe tears of joy, but not tears from weeping. That's an absolutely remarkable thought. And finally, he says, there is comfort for those who are persecuted for following Jesus. Verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. There's a great example in the book of Acts where the apostles were persecuted for preaching. We find this in Acts 5.41. And how did they they react that they were persecuted for declaring the good news? In Acts 5.41 it says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. In other words, they were rejoicing that they were persecuted because they were following Christ. They were fulfilling what God has called them to do. They were declaring the good news. And they rejoiced. There is a joy that is born in our hearts because we are anticipating heaven. Jesus says, your reward is great in heaven. Nothing on this earth is missed. Everything has eternal Significance. We look at this list, the comfort Jesus provides is for those who count the cost and follow him. Jesus wants us to see here that it is, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. You might not be poor, but you might have to give up certain pursuits because you know there's something more valuable than money. There might be something more valuable than what we desire. This is this best life that Jesus is talking about. This blessed life that he's talking about. You may choose to take a lower paying job for the purpose of spending more time with your family or the church or maybe as a couple you decide to live on one income for similar reasons. Students, you you might be mocked on campus for following Jesus 
Workers in your workplace maybe gossip about because of your devotion to Jesus. Because during lunchtime, you break out your Bible and you're reading your devotion. Or you might be gossip about or persecuted in that way. And what Jesus says, Jesus says, rejoice in that day. Rejoice in that day. So we've seen his comfort. We've seen the comparison. And finally, we see the challenge in these woes. And that is to consider what we value and what we worship. That's what the woes do. They, they, they're like a, a test to see what are we valuing and what are we worshiping. I'll just mention them briefly. For, for the rich who are only living for the obtaining of wealth, you have received all the satisfaction you will ever have. I mean, stop and think about that. For the rich who are only living for the obtaining of wealth, you have received all the satisfaction you will ever have. Every time it, this point comes up or this principle comes up, I, I, I go back to this thing, and I'm sure I've said it here before, Alistair Begg tells of a story where he was invited. He's, in, he's a pastor in Cleveland, Ohio. And he was, he was invited to a man's 60th birthday party. And, and he's high up. He's, he's a very wealthy man. And, and Alistair says, this is a very generous man. Um, and so they're up on top of one of the tall buildings in, in, uh, in Cleveland. And all of a sudden, the... the, the gentleman's birthday, the gentleman's whose birthday party it was, disappeared. And Alistair's kind of looking around, looking to see where this gentleman is. And, and he found this gentleman in his bedroom. And um, this gentleman was sitting on the bed weeping. And Alistair was like, why, why are you weeping? And, and the thing he said, and, and I don't, it's been a long time, I don't remember the quite numbers, but, but basically what he was weeping is, is he had a plan or a desire that he would be X amount of money or that X amount wealthy by the age of 60, and he failed to make it. Now, according in, in this example, that Alistair says that this man has enough money that he's never going to spend it and his children are never going to spend it. But here he sat at the end of the bed professing to be you know, a follower of Christ and, and, and being a very generous person. But here he was weeping because he didn't reach a certain goal of the wealth that he wanted to have by age 60. Even though everyone was there to celebrate his birthday. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to get at, that attitude. That are we living to obtain wealth? Then guess what? We've received our reward. We've received our reward. Paul said in in 1 Timothy 6, Do not set your hope on riches, but on God. Set your hope on God. Jesus also says, Those who are full now will be hungry. Those who laugh now will mourn. Those who are self-satisfied have no need for the gospel. They live at, at this life is a life of bliss. Laughing and enjoying all their earthly treasures, those will end up hungry and mourning. Those that are completely satisfied with the world and there's no need for the gospel, there's no need. Jesus says they will end up hungry and mourning. And thirdly, he talks about those who seek the praise of man, those who, who desire 
for men to think well of him. That, yes, there is, there is biblical idea for that. There's a biblical idea for elders where it, Paul even says that one of the things is, is the community around you must think well of the person that, who is an elder. So, the, yes, there is a biblical sense of that, but there's also this self-serving sense of that where we're always seeking man's praise. And the slippery slope to that is real simple. If your goal is to seek the praise of man, you will use people to get it. And on the flip side, you will abuse people when they get in the way of that praise. So Jesus is saying, no, don't don't seek the praise of man. Seek the praise of God. Seek him. Jesus says, woe to you. Jesus says there is a better way to live, and that is to follow Jesus and to realize there is a cost now. There will be a cost now. But there is also joy now, an even greater joy to come. There's an even greater joy to come. This, this time of suffering, this time that, you know, maybe like we started with, you feel like, like everything is, is coming at you, like the average, everything's coming at you today. But there is joy to come. There's a joy to come. Through the suffering, there is joy to come. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, and that's you and I, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking at that greater joy, Jesus in this text selects his team and he says here is what we need to do. This is what we don't need to do. He gives us two different ways to see the world. Two different ways to live. He tells us there is a cost because he is honest. He tells us up front. But he says it's all worth it. It's all worth it. Following Jesus My sisters and brothers is always worth it. No greater joy than to follow Jesus. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Father, we again we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that if we are in Christ that joy that Jesus had by going to the cross and taking our sin, where we can receive that joy, that blessed life that doesn't look at the world around us today, but looks to the world to come, to look at all the promises that we've been given in in the Word. Father, I pray if anyone here does not know you, Lord, Father, that your Spirit has changed their hearts and they will... Lay down the things of this world and trust in you, knowing Jesus just said it's going to cost you something, but that cost is worth it. And Father, I just pray that you will help each of us who are in Christ to check our hearts, to look at your words, hear that you have spoken, and to see how how are we living Who are we living for or what are we living for? And Father, may we be encouraged that these promises of the kingdom and laughing and joy and and the many promises you have here, 
Lord, they're for us because we are in Christ. And we give you praise for that. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.